Well, I'm, I'm a sucker for uh, Reen Russo and uh, Dustin Hoffman, so Outbreak. That one is more, it's not Ebola, I think they call it Motaba or something, but it's much more based on Ebola. What, the funniest thing about the comparisons there is, did you know that COVID is way more contagious than Ebola? Ebola is way more deadly. Ebola is actually not that contagious. It's just if you get it, you're really, really sick. COVID is sort of the opposite, where it's very, very contagious, um, and most people don't get violently ill. Everyone will be covid positive eventually. It just has to work its way through. There's nobody in the United States who's never gotten influenza. Nobody. Let's say goodbye with a smile, dear. Just for a while, dear. We must part. So that's what'll happen with COVID, is it'll go around and we'll all get it and we'll die or we won't. Don't know where don't know when, but I know This is Bar Crawl Radio, the on-the-street edition. We are sitting at our portable studio on West End Avenue and 92nd Street, appropriately blocking traffic. The BCR open mic is available to Upper West Siders out for a mid-afternoon stroll. And we are smack in the middle of the worst natural disaster to descend on humanity in the modern era. I'm Rebecca McCain with my co-host Alan Winson, and we are calling out to future humans. It has not been fun, but some of us are doing our best to make sure you will still exist. We are talking today with scientist Nathan Lentz about COVID-19 and about our fellow earthlings who deny fact-based science. And with that, here we go. Nathan L- H. Lentz. What's the H? What's the H? No. <laughs> Harold. It was my grandfather's oh, name. I like that. Nathan Harold Lentz is a professor of biology and director of the Macaulay Honors College at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is the author of Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches from pointless bones to broken genes. Lentz also maintains the Human Evolution blog and writes for Psychology Today and other other publications, I'm sure. In Psychology Today, it's under the tagline, Beastly Behavior, How Evolution Shaped Our Minds and Bodies. Recently, he's been countering supporters of intelligent design who complain about scientific approaches to effective policies on combating COVID-19 pandemic. And in April, he survived the disease. Nathan H. Lentz, so glad to have you with us once again on West End Avenue here. Well, West End Avenue for the first well, time. Yeah, for the first but time. But on Bar Crawl Radio. Second time on Bar Crawl Radio. We had you with our, uh, you appeared on Bar Crawl Radio, and we talked to you um, during our Margarita Crawl. That's right, it was a Margarita about Crawl. About your book, Human Errors, uh, back in uh, BCR number 16. Do you know it what? We've done a over 100 now. Over 100, wow. Yes. Well, it's yes. definitely a pleasure to be back, and it's it's certainly a pleasure to be doing this out in the middle of West End Avenue. I think it's a great setup you have here. I, I don't we think you're to going to be interviewed by any other podcast that does exactly what Bar Crawl Radio does. I, I can guarantee that. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> right in the middle of the street. Right. I, New Yorkers, you got to come by sometime in the corner of West End Avenue and uh, West 92nd Street to see this setup, this portable studio. It's really it's fascinating. It's, I hope this is a picture of future New York. Yeah, we yeah, we, we want this whole Western Avenue in grass, you know, with one lane for cars, but then the rest of the people just strolling along and right, right. having picnics out here. It, 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 seemed, it feels very of the people. I like it. 
How are you and your family doing with social distancing? Um, well, we've been pretty strict. We were strict um, from the get-go, but we had a little health scare in our family uh, in March and April, so we got even more serious. And um, I will say, though, we have been letting our hair down a little bit in the month of, of July and August, uh, meaning getting out and living a little bit, um, taking advantage of the nice weather and the fact that you are way safer outdoors than indoors when it comes to contact with other, other people. So we've been going to the beach uh, about once a week. We've been going to parks. We've been trying to be outdoors um, because that's where you can safely distance. It's very easy to actually be safe outdoors. If you're in a closed room with a bunch of people, uh, the risk factor is just astronomically higher than if you're outdoors. So we, uh, we went to the beach just on Monday. We were at uh, Reese Beach again. And um, the beach is wide enough that you can set up your camp far from, from other groups. Uh, it's easy to be distanced in the water. So there are ways to live a little bit, uh, even under these, these uh, conditions. Because so, I think we'll probably get here in the interview, but I'm, I predict a, another lockdown in our future. The fall is not going to be good. And when the weather gets colder and we close our windows and we're inside all the time, that's, that's just the perfect breeding ground. So my family and I, <laughs> we're trying to get outside as much as possible uh, to live a little bit while we can, knowing that a lockdown is, is in our future. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's really um, very smart. Yeah, we, we ought to try to get to the beach. I know. I'm still scared. I'm but still kind of scared. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was nerve-wracking. And one tip I have for going to the beach is go early uh, because the big crowds don't start rolling in until 2, 3 in the oh. afternoon. Oh, okay. And so the morning is great. The morning is great. It's cooler. Cooler, yeah. There you um, go. Lots of space. Uh, by 2 or 3, we're about done anyway. <laughs> We've had enough... Uh, enough uh, uh, photons on our skin by that point but um, hey, your it, it tan does, looks good thank you thank you that's why I've tanner that I've, I'm tanner than I've ever been I think because <laughs> because we've been outside so much it's your COVID uh, tan it's the COVID tan yeah, yeah. unfortunately I put on the COVID-15 I'm calling it yeah most have most have but like I said in the summer months there's really uh, no excuse to not get outside um, so that's what we're trying to do. I think we're outside more this summer than most summers, just psychologically trying to, because we can't do any of the recreational things at night that we're used to doing. You know, we're bar people, you know, we're, we're, we're socialites. Well, so bar crawl radio. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So that's where we exist at bars and boy. Yeah. The, the scene poor, is the dead. poor bars, the poor bars, oh, the poor bars and restaurants. Yeah, it's a sad um, place. And we them. haven't eaten out either, uh, even though they're allowing it out on the street, but it's a little crowded for us. Um, so we actually had our first meal at a restaurant-ish last night since March 14th. Where, where, where was it? It was at a pizzeria right around the corner from our house. Okay. Piazza, for anyone listening in, right. in Queens. We certainly have them here right on Broadway. Yeah, and the tables were nice and spread out, and we know the guys. You know, we've been going there year, for years. So uh, we felt safe with the distance that they had with the tables and things. But a lot of in Astoria, which is where I live, um, a lot of the restaurants, they're packing them in. And as I said, you're safer outdoors, but, I mean, within reason. Um, and I understand the temptation. People need it. Uh, the jobs in, 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 uh, in the restaurant industry are you know, few and far between. So I understand the need, but uh, we haven't felt comfortable with the eating out. It's so rough. Yeah. It's even, rough. Though, even though it's outside. To quantitate this, you're uh, literally 20 times safer outdoors than indoors for the same distance and, and uh, population density, if you want to right. put it that way. But... You know, it's not zero, and you're right on top. If your tables are right on top of other tables, especially they have it nice and covered, which I know they're covering from the elements, but you're also restricting airflow. So what's great about outdoors is that the air, it dissipates any of those respiratory droplets so quickly that within a few feet, they're, they're gone and well, gone West, forever. West End Avenue is very windy. They should call perfect. it Windy End Avenue. That's perfect. Um, perfect. And so we're not really wearing masks now. Yeah. No, no, no. If you're, 
comfortable distance from other people. You don't need a mask outdoors. Um, I, I wear a mask on my bike and when I'm running, partially as a social signal to others that, yes, you can exercise with the mask on. It's not that bad. And also just because I don't know if I'm going to get stuck in traffic right next to other people. I don't know who's, who's out there. So, and you don't know who's coming up behind you? Exactly, yeah. So it's just, if it's not terribly inconvenient, just wear the, wear the mask. But when, you, when we're seated like this out in the street, we're perfectly safe to, to not have a mask on, yeah. Right. So tell us about your experience with uh, getting COVID. COVID-19. Well, um, so I, I, the weird thing is I don't know when I got it. I, I know some other, I work at John Jay College, and I know some individuals who, who also had it there. In fact, a member of my department passed away. Um, but I, I it just, the timing wasn't right for that, for that to have be where I picked it up. So I don't know where I picked it up. I did have a doctor's appointment about a week before I got sick, so it's possible in the doctor's office. Anyway, what happened was I went for a long jog. I'm a, I'm a runner. And I went a little further than I normally do, so I was pushing myself a little bit. And it was cold out. It was middle of March. I came back, and I just didn't feel good. And I took my temperature, and I had a fever. But that's not unusual if I push myself a little too far on a run, especially in the cold. So I didn't think anything of it. Went to bed. Next morning, I actually felt fine. And then I got a fever again in the afternoon out of nowhere, about 3 in the afternoon. And this is the second day of my, of my symptoms. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I've got a fever for no reason here. Um, and I'm just kind of, you know, and that was the day, the same day that the news reports broke that they were pulling refrigerated trucks up to hospitals in Queens and Brooklyn to ta- daily to take away uh, the bodies from the morgue. What so, were you feeling? It was a little frightening that day. <laughs> it was a little frightening that day because we didn't, nobody knew how serious it was yet. This was March. This was mid-March. Maybe this was probably March 20. 20th or something. I think they locked down on the 19th. Yeah, I, it was, I think my jog in the park was the day that locked, the day before lockdown started. So maybe this was now the 19th was day two on the great, symptoms. So, great timing. <laughs> great timing. So it kept getting worse. So my symptoms were um, tight chest. I could never quite get a, a full breath. I was always, you know, if I stood up and walked across the room, I would have to pause and catch my breath. That's how winded I was just all the time. Just couldn't get on top of my breathing. If I did a flight of stairs, I'd have to lay down afterwards. And I have asthma. So is it like asthma? I mean, were you um, wheezing or? No. So asthma is constriction of the airways. So it feels like you you have to work really hard to get air in and out. Tell me about it. Yeah, Yeah, it's not like that at all. The airways were, were fine in terms of being open. I just had to keep taking these big breaths. They weren't labored breaths. I just had to take a lot of them. It was like, why am I having to breathe so much when... You know, all I did was walk across the room. And remember, I had run nine miles the day, you know, a few days before. So You're getting the oxygen in, but it's not being transferred yeah. to the cells. So the body's always giving the signal that not enough more, oxygen. More, more, so more, So when more. you don't get oxygen, you get dizzy. Is you it can, that kind yeah. of thing? Um, I was never lightheaded because I was really taking it easy. You know, I, I wasn't going anywhere. I didn't exercise. Um, I didn't even do any of my groceries. My poor husband had to do all the housework and, and shopping and everything, uh, which we normally try to split, you know, as evenly as we can. But I was, you know, isolating. So it was just, I just constantly had to breathe because all the, the respiratory lining, the, 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 the actually air exchange um, areas of the lungs were inflamed. And so oxygen, instead of having to travel a tiny distance, had to travel three or four, di- uh, you know, times as far. And so you just can't get enough. So about day seven or eight was probably when I was really, really out of it. And then uh, by about day 12 is when I was pretty sure I had developed pneumonia. So that's when I called the doctor. Doctor's like, it's probably time to go to urgent care. So I went to urgent care. And and what was that like? Being It was terrifying. Everybody there was for, for COVID, every, suspected COVID. Everybody there. And we were spread out in the waiting room. 
as best we could. I saw two individuals arrive, uh, both older women separately. Um, and they were seen before me, obviously, because uh, they were more critical and they were older. And they both left in ambulances. Um, and the sad thing to think about is that might have been their last ride anywhere um, because they were headed right down to Elmer's Hospital. And, um, and they looked that sick. They looked very ill. They looked very ill. And so they take the, the first thing they do is take your blood oxygen uh, concentration. And if it's below some number, I don't know what that number is, they just immediately to the ER. Uh, mine was okay, and, and that's what the, the doctor said, like, I can't test you. I was like, why? Like, because they're very limited, they're rationed, we don't have enough tests, so your oxygen's okay. It's, it's low, but it's okay, so I can't test you. I was like, I was like that's because I'm a runner, I'm in good shape. And you see me out of breath right now, like, I'm just sitting here and I can't breathe hard enough. And she's like, yeah, you probably have it, I can tell you that, you have it, probably. But, but they had to limit the number test of tests at that yeah, time. At that point. At because that point. we were just not ready for it. We were totally, we were just, we were almost willfully unready um, at that point. Um, however, um, they did, I did get a chest x-ray, so they diagnosed the pneumonia from that. Um, I had that granular uh, ground glass appearance in the lungs. And then about a week later, I was able to get tested. My doctor got his hands on a test. Um, he, however, has several pre-existing medical conditions so he had me do the swab myself he dropped it off on my porch he's two doors down from me and said it's on your porch get the swab here's how to do it it's the nasopharyngeal you have to stick it way up the nose oh it feels like i'm touching my brain you know those are things it's not easy to do yourself Uh -uh, how how do you know you did it right yeah how do you know you got it well you're a scientist well it was positive (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, the tests are now positive but yeah i mean it's actually not as bad as it think like to do it but it does feel very very uncomfortable i it felt like i was touching the back of my brain but it um but it got the test and that was positive got got results in a couple of days um, and then about a week after that, I was pretty much better. I waited another week before I started exercising again. So all told, it was about four weeks. Did you ever have to stay overnight in a hospital? No, no, no. Um, you I mean, your medication and it helped. So the doctor did give me, this is funny to say this now, hydroxychloroquine and, and uh, azithromycin. Um, this was March, or by now it was April. Um, and, you know, there wasn't evidence real good evidence either way at that point so he was just like it's all we got so take those two things and i did get better i don't know if it's you know had anything to do probably the azithromycin helped with the pneumonia because what happens is you know when you when their lungs are in that state you just get opportunistic infections secondary infections so um some bacteria probably set up camp and so that's why the azithromycin probably helped yeah I, i think i made a full recovery i do have sore toes i don't know if you've read about covid toes no but my second and third toes on both feet are really sore for no reason how annoying yeah but it doesn't stop me from doing anything it's just kind of like you said annoying but um, Any yeah. other lingering effects besides that? Not, not that I c- can really say, except I do maybe once or twice an hour, I have to take a deep breath for apparently no reason. Well, I feel like and I'm taking a deep breath right now. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone's all just sitting there and I'll just have to go. And so I don't know if that's Everybody just gotta, some yeah. lingering scarring on the yeah. lung. I don't know what it is. Um, but it was my husband noticed it while I was sick and he said it was it unnerved him a lot. Because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just have to take a deep breath. And, I, and he and your kids didn't get it. They did not get it. No. But you, I read um, in an article that you wrote about this mm-hmm. that your doctor thought that your kids may have given it to you. And I, I do not understand how that works. How is it? I mean, I understand that someone can be asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. But then 
Is it like typhoid Mary? Do they just carry the germ and they can just keep getting people sick? Yes, for a, for a time. So asymptomatic time, okay. carriers, uh, well, they're not, carriers isn't the right word, but, but asymptomatic um, patients um, will be infectious for a certain period of time. Um, and I don't know if the kids ever had, at one point, um, a lot of doctors in New York City thought that the schools, the public school, all, all schools were sort of the breeding ground and the kids were passing around to each other, but That's not really getting sick, right. but they were passing it to their parents and, and others. Um, that theory has sort of fallen out of favor because um, you didn't see a huge outbreak among teachers or school staff. So if the kids really were these incubators, you would have expected to see that and you didn't. So I think personally, I think it was the subway. Uh, was the subways and buses because no city in the United States does public transport like we do where we're really packed in there like sardines almost all of us take public transportation one time or another so I, I that's what I think uh, I don't know if that's been definitively shown or not my doctor thought it was the kids because he had several COVID patients and they all had kids and most of his practice is older people I chose him because he's two doors down that's that's <laughs> but he has mostly older patients um, so he said he thought it was kind of a too big of a coincidence that all of his COVID patients had children yeah. Well, one of the things you wrote in the article that I read in Psychology Today is that you felt you needed to share this experience. I mean, you're sharing it again. Right. Why is it important for COVID-19 patients to share this with others? Right. So I didn't tell anybody while I was sick, not even my parents, because um, there, there's simply nothing that anyone could do. And I did not see the value of making everybody terrified and worried, um, especially as the news from Queens was so bad at that time. I just thought, once this is over, I'll tell people. But my mom, because my mom was calling me every day just because I was in Queens. Yeah. <laughs> not, she had yeah. no idea I was sick. So I didn't want to do that to her. She's, she's older, and she's taking care of my dad. and So I didn't, um, didn't tell anybody. But afterwards, the thing that actually spurred me was uh, I, I kept seeing people commenting on Facebook, other things like this, is it's just the flu. This is like the flu. It's a, it's a, little, it's a slightly worse version of the flu, and we have the flu go around every year. And that pissed me off because this is very different than influenza. It, it shares some aspects, especially in how it's uh, transmitted. That's really the main thing it has in common with and influenza we, we, is we respiratory get, droplets. We want to get yeah. to that. We want to yeah. hear about that. But, I have but to agree. after that, the virus is totally different than influenza. But to- that's what totally I thought, different. too. Yeah. I thought when yeah. this was coming out, it's a form of flu. Right, right. You know, it's not going to be that bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and, let's, and let's, let's, let's get to that. Crazy I, thought. I, sure. I, I wanted to talk a bit more about this uh, idea that um, we're living in, in a very real situation but not believing it. Yeah, right. um, you write, you wrote, the continued comparisons COVID-19 to the seasonal flu, as we've been talking about, are not just unhelpful. They are part of wild conspiracy theories and a massive misinformation campaign that public health officials are now calling the infodemic. And then you wrote, the bug is everywhere and that we need to take enormous care to stop the th- spread but it's not certain that we will succeed in this country, it seems to me. It is now the beginning of August 2020, and in many parts of the U.S. we're not socially distancing or wearing masks, and infections and deaths are rising. In part, the problem in this country is a denial of science as an authority, and, and you've, you've written on this. Yesterday we spoke with Olympia Barry, a medical assistant here in the city, and, and here's what she said about that. My name is Olympia Barry. I work in uh, the city, in the east side, as a medical assistant for a dermatologist. I guess the biggest problem is that people doesn't want to follow the CDC guidelines of ha- having, you know, mask, wearing a mask. That's the, the biggest problem for me for now. Well, in my opinion, 
people who are following Trump are in a cult per se. Some people use their common sense and know if you know if a younger person doesn't want to infect their older older person in the household, then they follow the CDC or they read they read about it and they were able to follow or they follow the guidelines of the CDC and other health officials. So, so Ms. Barry insists on following CDC guidelines, but many do not believe that our health officials are telling us the truth. Many will not be vaccinated even after we get the vaccination. We know that many will not do that. Uh, Dr. Michael Egnor, who you are familiar with, a pediatric neurosurgeon and faculty at the Department of Neurological Surgery at Stony Brook State College, describes you, sir, as arrogant and accuses you of ranting in your call to trust public health officials. How dare you <laughs> do that? Amazing. Um, well, I've been called worse things than arrogant. I'll, I'll take the arrogant jab uh, well, but... Um, Michael Ignore is part of a, a cabal of uh, anti-science activists, and they rail against particularly evolutionary science, but, but they consider it part of a larger problem of mainstream science. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure what they think goes on uh, within mainstream science, but he's gone off on public health officials, um, oddly, for being wrong in the very earliest days and not enforcing quarantine and lockdown earlier. And on that point, he's absolutely correct. If New York City had started even just two weeks earlier than we did, um, it probably would have saved about 80% of the lives that died because there was there was all this transmission going on. Um, and I don't fault pub public health. Well, public health officials were calling for it, but I don't I don't fault that politicians for the mistakes they made in early March because we have dodged this bullet so many times that it was a, a complacency that was sort of understandable. But if you see what happened in New York, once, once we did snap into action, the transmission rate dropped so far, so fast, that by now, um, New York is one of the safest places to be regarding COVID, um, even though we were the epicenter. But here's why we're still in trouble. When the spread began in February and March, it had a few focal points and then bloomed like flowers from those focal points. Since that time, though, it's been spreading horizontally through this country. And when now, when the flowers bloom, they're blooming from a thousand points instead of a few uh, uh, locations. So when this bubbles up again as we go inside and close our windows and all that, um, we're in real trouble. And New York it can't insulate... You're talking about the winter. I'm talking about the fall and the winter, yeah. Yeah, yeah when, when the temperatures drop and uh, we're, you, know, you can't bike and walk to work anymore... And work from home starts to, you know, go away. People close their windows, all of that. Uh, and we are stuck indoors in close proximity with other individuals. Transmission is going to go up. It, it goes up every year. Uh, transmission of respiratory droplets, uh, of diseases that are born uh, through respiratory droplets. Uh, that is the one thing it has in common with in influenza is the transmission uh, through respiratory droplets. However, um, so, so when I wrote a lot of my articles, it was early on. We were still studying this thing. People want answers so fast, but these things take a long time to understand. Normally, we would spend still, years we're still learning discovering. Yes. Yeah. We would spend years researching these things before. And we will. Yeah, and we Even will. We will. This. But people want their answers now. They want answers now. Um, I want to see my grandchild. Yes. <laughs> right, right. So, um, so at that time, we didn't know for sure how it was transmitted. Uh, now we're pretty sure, actually. And the news is very good. That a mask gets you 90% of the way there. Social distancing gets you the rest of the 10%. The news couldn't have been better, really. But the problem was 
that it was so unclear before that, mm -hmm. and and it was so much like you know these droplets are so small. This mask is not right. going to protect you. Yeah. You know, it's just a waste of time. That's right. And we were all wiping down our groceries, and we we're doing all this stuff. I and still am. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a bad idea to do that, but it's probably not necessary. Probably not. We've seen very very rare uh, transmission through objects and other things. It really. Um, you're, you're really fine in most ways. It's just wear the mask and, and have distancing. So it's the best news possible, and it still isn't being accepted. <laughs> people still Wearing the mask is still too much for some people uh, in the United States. Um, so I don't know how it could have turned out better, really, in terms of, of, of transmission. Uh, and yet here we are. This is, uh, of all the self-inflicted wounds this country has, COVID-19 has to be the dumbest, yeah. uh, in, in my view. What would happen to the virus if everyone actually did use a mask and we didn't see all these flare-ups and spread across the country where would the virus go it would go away right so it would it would die it would within die. each person that either uh, perishes or beats it most beat it um it would go away and that's exactly what happened in every other country i have friends that live in taiwan now taiwan like other east asian countries have figured this out a long time ago because they've had SARS and MERS and, and um, you know, they've dealt with, with um, various strains they've of influenza as well. They've been for years. They have a mask culture. And so when this all hit in Taiwan, which is much closer to ground zero than the United States and with much more travel, um, they went into their mode and within a month, that was it. Zero cases in Taiwan. They, they are fully opened up. They've been fully opened up for about six, eight weeks now. And they don't have international travel because they don't want to come back. But other than international travel, life in Taiwan is 100% back to normal. And Japan the same way. And they didn't even really do a lockdown. They just did the masks. And Japan completely beat it. You can do it. It's, it will go away if we all do that. Of course, those cultures um, had experienced mm -hmm. SARS and mm -hmm. yeah. those, those other diseases. So it's, it, they've been a culture to wearing the mask. Yeah, that's they what have. you just said. They yeah. have. They all... In addition, there's another even more intangible element, which is that they also have a culture, and I hate to say this, but where they understand that they live with other people and that what they do affects other people and they don't have the right to endanger other people just for their own autonomy. And that's what we don't have for here. For their freedoms. In the United States, so when the masks, so at first they didn't recommend masks because they wanted to save them for healthcare individuals, and that was a mistake, we know now. But anyway, when the masks started coming out, People are like, well, it's my right. If I want to take the risk, I should be able to risk my own health. You can't force me. And then the scientific community immediately said, no, 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 it's not just protecting yourself. You're protecting others. And I said, oh, that's the wrong argument to make in this country. It works everywhere else but here. But here, people believe you have the right to endanger other people. But you have the right to smoke. It's, it's your God-given constitutional yeah. right to screw everyone else uh, for your own freedom. I hate to say that that, that way, but it's, I think it, it's been laid bare that that's what we believe here is that you yep. have the right to be as reckless as you want. And, it, you now, know, the, the, uh, the consequences, the, uh, the other uh, thing, and it, and it occurred to me because another um, scientist I'll put quotes around it, Michael Bay, mm -hmm. uh, a biologist and the author of the popular book, Darwin devolves is known for his support of intelligent design. And you write that Bay and his followers start with, start with a truth mm -hmm. that they believe in. And then they mold an explanation for the science that fits that truth. Right. That's the opposite of science. That's right. Right? So this sounds much like what our president does. It's like Trumpish logic. And it's really difficult to break through what people already believe. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? It, well, it's a, it's a problem for all of us because uh, as psychology 
psychology research has taught us, we do have a tendency to want to have our beliefs that we want to believe and bend the facts the best we can to support those. That's that's a human quality. That's not a conservative or a liberal liberal Hence quality. All the myths that we believe. Yeah, we in. yeah we all do that a, a little thus, bit. Thus, climate change is is not a right. fact. Right. But see, in in science, what we have is a self-correcting system, because. First of all, you, you have to provide your raw data free of your interpretation. And then, you, of course, in, when you publish an article, you also include your interpretation. But everyone has access to the raw data to draw their own conclusions. And then the community criticizes and refutes and adds more data. So it, over time, science isn't perfect. It is definitely not perfect, but it is self-correcting. So when errors come out, they are caught and corrected, sometimes quickly, sometimes less quickly, but they do come out. So it, no one owns the truth there. There's just data. And the data is the data. And so the sci- when, you, when you're training as a scientist, like if you, if you get a Ph.D. In, in sciences, it's not so much about learning. You spend very little time in the classroom. It's more, much more about thinking critically and trying to remove that bias that, and, and trying to become truly objective. And we, we, we use instruments to help us with objectivity. <laughs> um, but um, that's what the scientific endeavor is like. And that's why so few scientists, for example, doubt the science on climate change. Because it speaks for itself. If you back away from the fact that you love your, your, your automobile that, with 10 miles per gallon, if you can step away from that for a second and just view the science, it's pretty clear. Climate change, evolution, all of these other supposedly controversial topics are not controversial in the world of science. But that's because they've been scrutinized heavily you know, by other scientists. Right. And so we trust the process. We don't trust individuals. We trust the process. We trust the community. So the CDC and WHO, they can get it wrong. They can. For the, the first time. And they, and they, and they did. Mm-hmm. But they self-correct. That's right. And the community scrutinizes. I mean, the idea that there's this consensus science that we all agree and then we don't criticize each other, that's just ludicrous. Scientists love to take down other scientists. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. <laughs> there was a, a writer, I don't remember who it was, but he wrote a book about kind of all of the, the back and forth and these great, you know, moments of discovery. Mm-hmm. And what was going on behind was yeah. vicious. It is vicious. Yeah, scientists are humans. They are, and they are driven by ambition and all of that. Um, but that's why you don't put your trust in any one individual. You put your trust in the process, in the, in the, in the, in the community. Um, and it is self-correcting. And so in the science on COVID, um, early on, you have to remember also that Fauci and others who, do, who weren't recommending masks early on, mostly it was because the short supply of medical-grade masks was made clear. And it was going to be weeks before we had the kind of supplies that we needed, if not months, in the hospitals. And so if people walking down the street were wearing them, nurses and nurses' aides wouldn't. Uh, so that was unacceptable. So that was, that was where that came from. And, and, and Fauci has said that many, many, many times, that they didn't recommend masks for that reason. Um, it could have been communicated better. We all know that now. But other than that, the science that they've had has been pretty much right on. It was cautious at first. Well, this is Bar Crawl Radio on the street. We are speaking with scientist Nathan Lentz, talking about the COVID-19 predicament we are in right now. In May 2020, Psychology Today published two of your articles on the science of COVID-19. The first article explained that COVID-19 is nothing like the seasonal flu. What are the differences? Well, so I broke it into two articles because one is the molecular stuff, kind of the nitty-gritty details, and not everybody's interested in that level. But the first article, um, I talked about just clinically it's different. So the main difference, I think, is that 
Influenza is very restricted to a few types of cells in your body that get affected, and they're in the respiratory system, and that's pretty much it. Unfortunately, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, can attack all kinds of systems in your body. It enters through the respiratory system, and that's why the first effects are felt there. But it very quickly becomes systemic. We're finding neurological symptoms. We're finding uh, a lot of joint systems. Uh, symptoms, excuse me. Um, it, it can really affect, it, it, generally what we're now seeing is that it is a blood vessel disease. Um, and the reason why the lungs are particularly affected is that the lungs have as many blood vessels as the rest of your body put together because that's where the oxygen comes in. And then on the other end of the blood vessels is where the oxygen is delivered. So those have to, I never knew that. They have to be roughly equal. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So it's, think of the, lung, the lungs as very much like a sponge, and the, the water is like system. air. That's right. So it, it picks up all the oxygen. So you have more blood vessels in your lungs than the rest of your body put together, so that's why there's so much symptomatology in the lungs. But there are symptoms all throughout the body. Um, and, so, and that's not what you see in influenza at all. The other thing is it's more deadly than influenza. I mean, that's the worst part. But the morbidity... Is, is what's terribly frightening. People concentrate so much on the death rate, but they forget that, um, that when you're sick with COVID, you're very, very sick, and you're sick for a while. People are having symptoms for three and four months, and then we might, we might also be facing a permanent disability from COVID. So, so we, your COVID toes may last for a while. COVID toes may last for a while. And um, for, for example, p- people with influenza, like the rhinoviruses that cause the common cold, uh, and other coronaviruses even, um, you, you clear it and you're done. If you had influenza last year, which many of us did probably, you don't have any lingering effects. But there are lots of viruses and other kinds of infections that are permanently disabled. Think of like Lyme disease or polio. Polio. My mother or, had polio and suffered from it her whole life. Yeah, that's right. Some of these, and even chicken pox. You can have shingles 30 years later. There you go. <laughs> you got the vaccine. Yeah, so the, the point is is that um, we, we, don't, we want to assume this is like influenza, that you clear it and then you're done forever, and it might be more like polio. We don't know that yet. Uh, and we do know that there are neurological symptoms. So it, there's every reason to believe that it could be permanently altering some, some at least some uh, portion of the of the sick people. So so that's that. The first article that I wrote was just about how the clinical presentation, besides the respiratory symptoms, it's really entirely different than influenza. It's way more deadly, affects way more systems, and it does show the age. Uh, it shows even more age prejudice. Um, but young people can get very very ill from COVID. Um, and you don't see that very much from influenza. So the biggest, the scariest thing about this disease, it seems to me, is that how it spreads so rapidly mm-hmm. and to so many people. Yeah. Um, and, and my other question, and I think it's probably the same question, is that why is it called a novel? Novel, right. So it's novel because it only recently entered the human population. And it, it, it did so by jumping from another species. In this case, almost certainly bats. It could have been... There's it some wasn't other somebody animals. cooking up something in the... It wasn't, no, no. We know he, it wasn't engineered. There, you there sure it wasn't Fauci in his, you know, his yeah. home lab? <laughs> That's right. We know it wasn't engineered. So um, it is possible... Uh, there is a theory. It's a very minority theory that it could have escaped from a lab that studies what are called zoonotic viruses. Zoonotic viruses are those viruses that jump from animals to humans. Do they have a um, big lab like that in Wuhan? They do. Oh, yeah, they do. So oh. there is a there is a at least a couple of facts that when you put them together look a little suspicious. But they but also eat bat. 
That's right. In, in, the, in the wet markets, in the in the wet markets, there are. It, it's certainly that's the much more likely explanation. That's the much more likely explanation. But it is possible that it could have escaped from a lab. But I mean, it's important to remember that that lab wasn't engineering viruses; it was studying them from the wild. Um, so I don't think that's where it came from. But it, it, that one is at least feasible. Did a lot um, of those people get sick in that lab? Uh, some did. Yeah, but it also was within six blocks of the wet market that people that we know that the outbreak started, or we presume the outbreak started. So anyway, the point is, though, a novel coronavirus, what that means is, if it's only recently jumped to the human population, we have literally no defenses against it whatsoever. Influenza, each year, most years, and let me qualify this with I saying most years, but most years, the strains that are big are just variants of the strains that have come before. They're mutants. And so we do have some resistance. So our antibodies might not fit perfectly well like a hand in a glove, but kind of. And what that can do, that kind of um, resistance that we have slows it down so that we have time to mount our own defenses and it doesn't completely take us down. Uh, And that's why you should get vaccinated every single year because you can develop some cumulative cross immunity. You do, after 20 years of vaccines, you're going to be a lot more resistant than than someone who didn't have those. Um, But with a novel one, you have not even any partial. And that's what um, SARS was. Uh, so when the, when the SARS-CoV-1, which hit in, what was that, 2003 or so, uh, 2002, 2003, um, when it jumped, uh, I th- that one wasn't from bats. I forget where it was from. But that one did the same thing. It was very, very infectious and very, very harmful. Luckily, we, we clamped it down and it didn't jump any further. Coronaviruses that have already been around in humans have been causing colds and other respiratory symptoms for some time. So this is not that, though. This is a distant relative more recently jumped to the human population that's what's novel about it and like hiv was was that and HIV. we don't have the, we don't have the immunities no immunity at all no nothing. natural immunity nothing. to it yeah i mean like just the native our, americans in the cold that's right so so during when uh, europeans introduced things like the pox pox viruses uh the ones that cause smallpox anyway uh there was no natural immunity there Right, and so it devastated Native American populations. We we uh, uh, spoke with uh, this uh, health clinician, um, Olivia Barry, and she also talked about another aspect which I have not read about, and I just want to check it out with you. Here's what she said: The problem with COVID nineteen is that uh, there are studies that are there are different strains uh, of um, COVID nineteen, and it mutates as it infects people. So. Every three months or every week, their um, most um, symptoms are different. People in the hospital taking care of patients, they have a set rule of management, and all of a sudden it mutates. They don't know how to deal with it if new symptoms or new mutation takes place. To mitigate it, we have to really uh, follow the guidelines of the CDC to uh, wear masks and do the social distancing. So is, is Barry correct that the protocols that they need to change because the coronavirus changes? Right. Uh, yes, is the short answer. The, the longer answer is that any virus, all viruses do have a certain mutation rate over time as they're transmitted over time and they copy their own genome. It's bacteria. Um, well, it's not bacteria. Bacteria it's have it also, but vi- okay. viruses, they use our own I machinery. Yeah. Virus, what makes a virus different than bacteria is it doesn't have any of its own parts. It commandeers the cell's machinery to make more of itself. Okay. But when it makes copies of its genome, it's error prone. And so you can introduce little mistakes, and those mistakes are what we know as mutations. Some of those mutations will make it worse, meaning more virulent and more infectious. 
Um, and those, of course, will be selected for over time because the more virulent it is, the more successful it is as a virus. Um, now, ultimately, and that's in the short term. So in the short term, what we generally see with viral evolution is that it gets worse in terms of its infectiousness um, because it's the most virulent strains are the ones that sort of rise to the top in, in the competition for infection. However, in the long term, evolution of viruses tends to make them less deadly because the last thing a virus, a parasite wants to do is kill its host, right? And so when a virus jumps to humans, that's generally when it's most dangerous because it's not used to this new host. Um, like HIV, you know, came over from, uh, pr- from uh, probably chimpanzees uh, butchering. And so HIV, and it doesn't make the chimpanzees very sick because it's been with them for a very long time. But when it moved into the human population, um, it, it, it sort of runs roughshod. Um, over time, it would mutate to become less and less virulent. Unfortunately, with a lot of tragedy in the wake. So what we're seeing with COVID is there. So we know already several routes of mutations that have taken uh, shape in different geographic locations. And so the mutations that have led to that. Um, None of them seem terribly um, unexpected in terms of how it's transmitted, how it's infected. But it does seem to affect symptomatology, which is really strange. Because if it's infecting... Yeah, the truck's just kind of just... Little FedEx truck went by, yeah. Yeah. if, it, if it's infecting um, using these proteins, uh, spike proteins and things like this, um, it's sort of unclear to me why it would change. You know, all that stuff is the same. Why does it change the symptomatology? But the fact is, it does. And so the early phase, what I think, this is now this is conjecture. I read a lot on this. Obviously, I did, especially at first when I was ill. My conjecture on this is that the people who are being affected are different. And so we're seeing different symptoms now than we did in March and April because it was mostly the elderly, nursing homes, and those who were infirm in one way or another. Had certain comorbidities. Exactly. So they were, they were susceptible when we weren't being careful. Um, now it's striking a much younger generation of patient. And I think that that's why the symptoms are different. Can I propose a, a, a theory? Please. Scientist just from Rebecca. Listening, just yeah. from listening to your, your, your talking about this. The fact that it's a bloodborne pathogen. Well, it can be, yeah. So, is it so? And it occurs, and you, and, and, and older people are more susceptible to to dying from this because they their systems are run down. Their mm-hmm. systems are not as strong. Whereas a younger person, like the fact that it didn't overtake you, is because you are strong, probably maybe. And so, but so there the are fact, young people who I'm are not, dying of yeah. it. Well, yes, that's true. Young yeah. people who may have other. Out, yep. Mm-hmm. you know other uh, issues so i'm wondering if this this um parasite this this virus is looking for weakness throughout well, your body well so it because it affects so many different things right any any uh, let, let me put it this way the receptor the ace2 receptor which is what uh covid binds to to enter into its cells it's like a key yeah, so if COVID is the key, it's the lock. It's, it's, right. it's what it's looking for. And, and right. the, the, the placement in the body where these ACE2 receptors are in the tiny little sacs in the, yeah. In the lungs. Yeah. Th- so that's, which I learned from your article. Yeah, that's, that's, why, that's where it, it comes in. It comes in through the nose, and you actually do get an, an infection in your nose as well. It just doesn't gen- tend to produce a lot of symptoms. But it enters in through the nose, and then, and then the cavity is there, ACE2. However, you have ACE2 receptors all over your body. Anywhere where there's blood vessels, there's ACE2. And so it can exploit those as a as an opportunity if you have high blood pressure however you seem to be more vulnerable and ace2 is involved in blood pressure regulation that's what it does and so 
um, that makes sense. So generally, I think your vascular health is the best indicator of your susceptibility. I thought I was in great uh, vascular health, which is why it was a surprise to me that I got sick. But I got sick and then got better. What we're seeing is that, and this is true for lots of uh, respiratory illnesses, is that the dose of virus that you get hit with at first, is very, there's a very good correlation between that and how sick you get. Dose meaning how much? Yes. If you just get a ton of virus inhaled, like you're really close to someone who was really sick, then you get a whole bunch you're going to get a much, much worse outcome um, than if you get just a little bit of it. And what that mm. tells me is that the viral replication cycle is slow enough that you can get on top of it um, if, you don't, if you don't, yeah, if you don't get overwhelmed. Hmm. So I may, you know, if I got exposed in a doctor's office to someone who unbeknownst to them was really sick with it, that could explain that. I, I, I don't know. Um, all I know is that I think I've made a full recovery. And, and oh, you look, you, I mean, you look great, except, of course, for your toes, which I don't want to look at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely exercising even more than I ever did because I'm, I'm a little paranoid now about, well, you, you, about not just you that. Rode your, you rode your bike over here from yeah, the Yeah, from Queens. Queens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because, well, first of all, I don't want to get on the train. Uh, oh, oh, really? Because I've heard different stories about that. Yeah, but I don't want to get on the train. Yeah, that's he got it. Come on, I, he's I not wanna, getting back on the train. I know, train. but they clean the train up. They, they do. The tra- it's, they train is safer filtering. than it, than it ever has been. But I did take the train when my, my brother was in town visiting. And so, you know, we took the train. And, and you held your breath for... There's a lot of people without masks on the train. I was really surprised. Not a lot, but enough that it was noticeable. Scary. Yeah. And, and some, of the, some of the people that you see on the train without a mask are not well. You know, there's a homeless population who are, who are on the trains uh, daily. Um, and I think that was, that was some of what was going on. But I was just sort of a little surprised. So I was like, oh, you know what? And, and uh, we have, that hasn't come up yet, but I am now COVID antibody negative. What does, what that, does mean? that mean? I don't know what that means. I don't have well, I don't have detectable antibodies against COVID anymore. You don't. Mm-mm. So you could get it again. Presumably, get it again. Presumably, I am, I, and I am behaving as though I am vulnerable again. Now, is that normal for someone who's for just COVID. been through for, for COVID? COVID? They're seeing this more but and more. But not other virus. Uh, everyone's different. So there are ones like that. The common cold is like that, too. For whatever well, reason, the, vi- the antibodies just don't last very long. Wow. Uh, and this is one of these many things that we just don't know very well. Oh, that's bad. Um, but it's bad. That's this, bad. This does not bode well. Because even if we, we push it down, to it, there could be some backwater where it's still yep. alive. That's, that's right. Bad. And that's why I said at the beginning, and I really believe it now, the vaccine is the only thing that's going to save us. And... It doesn't, I mean, there's a lot, there are what, three or four now in phase three trials that are looking promising, but I mean, a good vaccine generally takes many years to develop, so. But yes, but, but, oh, you're talking about what, the last one was the polio, right? Mm-hmm. And that took how many years? I mean, it. Uh, so the polio vaccine was probably seven, eight years in they development. They didn't have computers. They didn't That's true. put the, inten- the attention and the intention yeah. that they're putting now on getting this done. No, no, we're, you're absolutely right. Herculean efforts are being being mounted against lots uh, of money for this vaccine yeah so i huh, you know i'm really crossing my fingers yeah. and I'm, i've already signed up for vaccine studies i don't know if they'll take me since i since i had it but i encourage everyone if you just google uh sign up vaccine studies um they're going to need a lot of healthy people for these trials i can't to, take the risk to get the vaccine well no, i mean if, 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 if you, you think it's that. appropriate if you think it's appropriate for you Uh, They're going to need a lot of healthy people. And here's the slow step is they can't intentionally expose people. So they just have to vaccinate a bunch of people and watch what happens and see what percentage of them. And some they give them sugar pills. Right, exactly. And they compare the rates. So it's just like in the the general population, how do you, if you survive. Yep, so they give it to them and they say live your life. 
right. and they say the placebo group and the real vaccine group, and they see if the rates are different. So that just takes a lot of time to get that data. There's no way to speed that process up. Uh, I, I totally, and I think Rebecca does too, recommend reading your two articles in Psychology Today. Just look up in Psychology Today, Nathan Lenz, and I think there's two of them come out yeah. in May uh, or April, May. I'm actually, I haven't considered what, I, I need to go read read my articles to see how, how much has changed even since then. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was most of it's solid because I wasn't getting into that much detail. But um, you know why I recommend reading? Uh, Carl Zimmer writes a lot. He's a, uh, the science journalist for the New York Times, and he's been writing about COVID-19 right from the start. Um, he maintains the uh, vaccine uh, a, a website on the New York Times page about the vaccine that are in development, what stage, what's the data. So he's really watching the vaccines because, like me, I think he believes that's our only hope at this point, um, which would meaning the next battle will be against anti-vaxxers um, who won't want to take this. <laughs> um, well, they can go live on an island. They're, that's their choice. I hope they're not allowed in schools, you know, if they're not Oh, no, they won't because, be. They won't be. They yeah. can't be. Not if yeah. measles. Oh, for goodness sakes. No. So you, you have a question for Nathan Lenz. Tell us, tell us your first name. Are you an Upper West Sider? I am an Upper West Sider. Get a little closer uh, to the mic. I am an Upper West Sider, and my, my name is Guy. Hey, Guy. You just want me to shoot? Just go, ahead. go right ahead. Sure. Uh, not entirely a scientific question, but how would you compare and contrast the culpability of deaths and sickness between President Trump and Governor Cuomo? Early on, I'm willing to give almost everybody a pass until about March 15th because we had, we had dodged this bullet so many times and elected officials um, had had ignored public health recommendations so many times and not paid any price for it that Cuomo, de Blasio, many of the others, we absolutely should have locked down two weeks earlier. Probably in New York alone, 15 to 20,000 people would still be alive today if we had locked down two weeks earlier. I don't bl- blame anyone in particular for those because we just didn't know that this was going to be the one we couldn't avoid. However, from March 15th onward... Um, uh, President Trump in particular has done almost everything wrong that he could, including and especially the procuring of supplies for hospitals. Um, like ventilators, for example, was a big deal at first. Everybody did. And now we know that ventilators almost almost do more harm than good. So as the science is waiting to come in, you listen to the experts who are on the ground. And that's what Trump absolutely refused to do. We locked down way too late nationally. We didn't get supplies where they needed to go. We didn't stop international travel, domestic travel early enough. And what that, what that allowed to do was to get such a strong foothold that then when we finally did lock down, it was already in so many places that it was spreading. Um, and so uh, there are several governors who have done as good as they could. Um, the governor of Illinois has been all right. Uh, Cuomo has been, I, I would give him a strong B plus, A minus. Um, I would give President Trump and Governor DeSantis the lowest grade you could. I think you would have to go into the negative rounds. Um for that. So I do blame, like I said, from March 15th onward, when it was so clear and undeniably clear that this thing was very serious and wasn't going away, um, all those mistakes uh, that were made centrally have cost thousands, tens of thousands of lives. Oh, that's great. Thank you. It is so frustrating. Thank Thank you, you guys. Thank you so much. It seems like so much of this experience of COVID-19, the coronavirus and all, has been not only a medical experience, but it's a social experience. Yes. Uh, It's really revealed a lot about who we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trump has revealed a lot about who Mm -hmm. we are. I agree. Um, You seem to think that once we get this vaccination, we're going to be okay. 
Is that is that in the bag? Uh, no, it's not in the bag. But I, you have to wake up in the morning somehow, some way. So, yeah, we, we all put our faith in something. So at this point, um, I think that the vaccine is what's going to save us. I think our the worst days are ahead of us, unfortunately, for COVID nineteen in the United Describe States. Describe them. So I think um, around in my in my prediction around October November uh, the you're going to see many more cities and states experiencing what Texas Florida Arizona are right now, which is skyrocket, skyrocketing cases, skyrocketing deaths, overwhelmed hospitals again. New York is going to be like we were in March. Um, that's what I predict. Oh, except boy. for except for being limited to a few geographical areas, it'll be the whole country. Um, this is going right into the election also. So just let your mind run away with that for a little while. So it's a little well, scary. Well, Trump right now is saying call off the election. He did float the idea this morning, I saw. <laughs> of course he is. Yeah. Of course he is, because um, he's, he he's, he's losing and he's, he's... Yeah, it's not what you do if you're, if you're in a strong position, that's, that's for sure. But we, listen, we mounted elections during the Civil War. We, we mounted elections... During the 1918 pandemic, I mean, uh, World War Two. Yeah, during World War, all the yeah. So we can mount an election safely, and mail-in ballots is rather, rather know, relatively trivial to do. You say that with but. such a reasonable tone, <laughs> as if there aren't other people in this country right. who will carry arms, and you know, it's it's a scary time. It is. It is a very very scary time, and I I try not to get too pessimistic just because like i said i gotta get up in the morning and i gotta and so my sphere of interest has shrunk a lot uh during this because for a while you know you feel like it's you against the world and then i just i just have to you know think about my kids and my family and my and my job and my you know i just try to and that's how you get through but it's funny i was talking to my mother on the phone um and i talked about that i was like well still mad she was a little mad at me for not telling her yet she got over she's like i know why you did it but um, but I was talking to her on the phone and I talked about how, you know, we're talking about Trump and this, that, and the other. I was like, but you can't worry about everything all the time. You know, you have to go on with your life. And she's like, yeah. She's like, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of Germans in 1938 were saying that too. And I was just like, God, mom. Boy, <laughs> I think I see why you're yeah. a scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. You have a mom deep, deeply in, involved with reality. Yeah. Yeah. You just, wow. yeah. Anyway, but um, I'm hopeful that it's one of those things that I don't know what's going to happen next, but down the road i think we'll get through it and ultimately the worst case scenario in the long term is that this will settle in like influenza as something we deal with every year with 100 to 200,000 deaths and we'll just accept it think of all the other preventable deaths that we've just accepted in this country from school shootings to suicides to lung cancer we've just accepted a car, certain car certain accidents yeah yeah exactly car accidents is a great one because if you reduce the speed limit and take some other measures you Real can easy. save really easy tens of thousands of lives a year and we just don't do it right. so what what scares me is that this will settle in somewhere around influenza maybe about twice the amount of influenza yeah it'll be the norm and that it'll be another fairly common Acceptable. cause of death yeah yeah, and the most vulnerable will be lost first, so the mortality rate will will drop, and then yeah, so we just won't. We someone asked me the other day. They said, "Do you think it's going to strike nursing homes again like it did in the first round?" I said, "No, because it it killed the vulnerable ones. I mean, they're not there anymore yeah. to die from it. They can't die from it again. So uh, the ones who are left are either recovered or are able to recover. Um, so I don't think it'll hit nursing homes as bad." But you map that same phenomenon onto the whole country, and that's, what's, that's what we're about to see. Tell me what is so stupid about the um, herd, uh, what do they call it, herd immunity? Ah, uh, well, so 
herd immunity has, has gotten a lot of good and bad press lately. Um, I mean, herd immunity, the, the concept of it is obviously scientifically sound. It's, it's how a lot of this works. But you, the way that you would get it through natural means is if it literally goes through the population. And if you look at the, um, if you look at the mortality rate, forget about morbidity for a second, but just the mortality rate, if it really does go through the entire country and we get herd immunity the natural way, you're talking about, what would that be, S- almost 3 million dead? Right. It's right? the number of people who would have to die. Yeah, about 3 million dead, right? So there's nothing that that compares to, right? So uh, that's just the United States. So that route is unacceptable. I think we all agree there. Um, now, the other way to get herd immunity would be to vaccinate yeah. with 100% efficiency. The problem, the problem there is, number one, people are going to refuse it. And number two, we don't know how good the vaccine is going to be. And with um, herd immunity in the first place, we don't know that you're necessarily immune. That's if right. If you've had it. So, yes, exactly. So, the, like with influenza, for example. Uh, l- actually, let's leave influenza aside for a second. Let's say measles is a good one. Um, it's somewhere around 98% effective, the vaccine. But that means 2% of the time it's not. That's why it's so important to vaccinate everybody because those 2% of the people that don't know that, and you don't know who, who those 2% are, it's random. They need to be as spread out as possible so you don't get an outbreak. When you have clusters of vulnerable people who don't know they're vulnerable, or if they do know because they didn't vaccinate, that's how you get outbreaks. And that's what happened with measles in Southern California. You had these enclaves of people who don't vaccinate and sure enough you got outbreaks of measles but if you spread the risk out then actually those vulnerable people aren't in close enough contact to spread it around so with this vaccine we'd be great if it's 98 percent effective but look at influenza that vaccine is nowhere near that on a good year it's 60 or 70 percent effective still saving millions of lives potentially but it's still so now you have anti-vaxxers plus it's only 60 percent effective you don't get to herd immunity that way either so, so we really can't get there. Not, no. Or we may because everything will fail. <laughs> right. So, I mean, if we come out the other side on herd immunity, it's with a lot of dead people. A lot of dead people. And, as we said, long-term disability that we're just learning about now. So, honestly, the answer is actually not that difficult. Stay home and wear a mask for a month and... And the virus will like, die. We can be like Taiwan and Japan. Kill, we yeah. can kill the virus. That's yeah. what they should say with those commercials, the mask commercials. Yeah. We can actually kill the virus yes. with this mask it, right here. It will die out, and it has. Wow. And this is why other countries are not allowing Americans to travel to their countries. Boy, I wouldn't. Um, no. I don't let Americans into our apartment. Yeah. <laughs> No <laughs> Americans. Taiwanese, you can come in. <laughs> yeah, that's a great policy. Stay, stay out. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to to use that joke. (laughs) Thank you, Nathan, for joining us on Weston Avenue for a bar crawl radio on the street conversation about surviving this pandemic. All right. It was a pleasure on not a pleasurable topic. And we wish you a pleasant bike ride home. Yes, we do. Bar crawl radio is all about having interesting conversations at our local bars, but the bars are only partially open for outdoor imbibing. Our beloved Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar and owner Matt Gephardt are suffering. In an upcoming BCR program, we'll be talking with Upper West Side bar owners at Gebhards, located on West 72nd Street, down the block from the RT station on Broadway. They are open Thursday to Sunday from 3 to 8 p.m. Please go there and buy a beer and have some French fries. Matt, stay alive. We will find you. We will find you. Good interview.